Mark 16. Let me read from verses 1 through 8 and then we will uh, pray. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the tomb for her? Uh, for us from the entrance of the tomb. Oh, sorry, who would roll away the stone from us at the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You're, you seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb. For trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for this text. And I pray that we would be able to understand and in understanding, Lord, that you would work through your text in our hearts and in our lives. May we be motivated, encouraged, and transformed. Amen. Amen. Well, I'm not going to talk about it tonight but I need to at least mention the elephant in the room. And the elephant in the room is that the end of Mark's Gospel is one of two of the long passages in the New Testament that are disputed. And if you were to read a King James Version or a New King James Version, the text will go from verse 8 right the way through to verse 20. And if you have footnotes, you might find in some of the footnotes some references saying some older manuscripts, some earlier manuscripts don't have this portion. If you have other versions other than the King James and the New King James, you'll have uh, either it separated, put in brackets, sometimes omitted altogether, smaller font occasionally happens, and there are the reason behind all of this confusion is that there are a large number of manuscripts that have verses 9 to 20. Um, but they are all later manuscripts. The earlier manuscripts that we have don't have verses 9 to 20. Now we're going to look at the ending of Mark, which I believe is verse 8, as most. Uh, scholars today think, most evangelicals, Bible-believing scholars think, and um, we'll see why it's an awkward ending. It's an awkward ending, and it meant that people wanted there to be something more. It didn't feel like enough. Now, the reasons 
and the arguments for me to conclude it ends in verse 8 and, to, and, and conclude as so many others do it ends in verse 8, as most Bible translations uh, implicitly conclude, are, are longer and complicated. And I didn't want to give you a lecture in textual differences and textual criticism and what have you. So we're going to be discussing that, if you're interested in those things, we're going to be discussing that on Tuesday night at our midweek study. We'll have an informal discussion and I'll go through the principles involved and the conclusions and where's and why for's and what have you. All I want to say in conclusion to this matter tonight, before we get on to the text, is, um, is twofold. Firstly, nobody's taken any verses out of the Bible. Sometimes the, uh, the King James supporters get very vocal and upset and agitated, and they'll say, look, they've taken these verses out of the Bible. The issue is whether they were there or not. It's just as bad to add verses to the Bible as to take them away. And um, the conclusion is not that they should be removed, but simply that they were never there and that people uh, added them at a later date. In fact, the longer ending is one of multiple longer endings. There's actually different versions that have got all sorts of endings, which is part of the evidence to suggest that people just wanted something extra. And I think secondly, Mark, as I've tried to do throughout this journey, throughout this gospel journey, I've tried to tell you Mark's story. I've tried to minimize you know, oh, here's a story about this incident. Let's see what Matthew, Luke, and John say as well and pull it all together. We haven't been doing that. We're teaching Mark's gospel. And Mark puts things in and he leaves things out that he could have put in. The stories that happened, he doesn't talk about. Um, words that were said that he doesn't mention. Because he's trying to tell his own rhetorical and literary story. There's points he's trying to make, there's things he's trying to emphasize. And I hope I'm going to show to you tonight that the ending of Mark's Gospel is, though it might initially look awkward, is deliberate, provocative, and motivational. And that's why it ends the way it does. So let's go through the text and then we'll look at some of these details. So, when the Sabbath was passed, chronologically now, the Sabbath, as you know, will be Friday sundown to Saturday sundown. Know that the, the, the Sabbath has been a quiet period, very bi few biblical mentions of it at all, and everyone's been resting on the Sabbath. And then when it gets to about 6 p.m., once the sun's gone down, once, the, as the rabbis would teach, three stars could be seen in the sky, then it's officially over and the Jews would often do buying and selling and things of that nature at that time of night because they hadn't been able to during the course of the Sabbath. And so when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices that they may go and anoint him. We mentioned these ladies last time, and we mentioned that they went to see where he was laid. The reasons that were given... Uh, more clearly and explicitly in other Gospels, he now kind of tells us in bypass, um, in passing rather, uh, simply that they were looking to anoint the body. Now, we saw last time the very prominent role that Mark gave to women at the resurrection. Mark has constantly, uh, through his Gospel, given us a series of 
um, intermediaries, as it were. So, for example, the obvious example, with blind Bartimaeus, he's, Jesus heals him and he says, can you see? And he says, well, I can see, it's blurry, I can see trees, you know, and people look like trees. And so Jesus again prays and boom, he, he's fully healed. And what we have is that as an analogy in Mark's gospel of how blindness is consistently through the gospel. From very early on, the quotation of, of Isaiah 6, that consistently the blindness is what the Jews are suffering with. They're blind. They can't see that Jesus is their Messiah. And then the disciples, voiced by Peter, says, we know, you're, you're the Christ. So they can see. But then Jesus starts to say to them, I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to die. I'm going to rise again on the third day. And they're like, no, 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 you're not. So they can see, but yet they can't see. They're that intermediary point. And with these disciples again in the resurrection experience, we've, we've seen, and I, I didn't mention these terms, we spoke about it last time, these intermediaries. The male disciples, the closest ones to Jesus, his closest friends, as we link to with one of the lament psalms, they'd all run off, they'd gone away. The ones who were faithfully staying, the ones who proved to not run off, the ones who had been more faithful to him were the women. And the Gospels universally give this high place of ranking to women in the resurrection experience. But they are still, as we saw last time, intermediaries. They have not come to say, hey, I wonder if the stone's been rolled away and Jesus has risen from the dead yet. They're there to anoint his body. They're there to make sure he is um, treated in accordance with how uh, customs say he should. They're there to show his body respect. They are not expecting a resurrection. In this account, they are the ones who are partially blind, whereas the other disciples have run off completely. And so very early on the first day of the week, what we know is Easter Sunday, They've now bought their spices late at night, gone to bed, gone to sleep, gotten up, and it's the first day of the week, it's the day after the Sabbath, started at the sundown on the, the previous night, but now they've had their sleep, they're going to go and they're going to go and uh, they're going to anoint him with the, uh, the oils. And so the sun has risen and they're going, it's just in the early light as it's still fairly dark. And they go to the tomb, and on the way there, they're, they're wondering, and they're saying to each other, who's going to roll away this uh, stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? So they've got a job to do, but they don't, they don't know how they're going to do it. These stones, you know, I couldn't roll it away, you couldn't roll it away. I mean, I wonder if all of us together could roll it away. I mean, these were large things that were put in place. This isn't something that could just be undone very easily. And so they didn't know what was going to happen. And then classic for Mark, he just loves this thing where he kind of suddenly, boom, you know, he uses the word immediately, boom, look, over here, boom, look, over here. And it's a similar kind, not the same word, but it's a similar concept here. And looking up, they see the stone has been rolled back. I do, I do think perhaps there's a little play here with looking up and the idea of Jesus having been risen and looking up to heaven and looking up to God and, and, and they're looking up 
and see the, uh, the first glimpse of the evidence of the resurrection. It was very large. Again, that's, a, that's an understatement. So they look up and see the stone has been rolled back. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, don't be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. And so they come and there's someone sitting there in the tomb. We'll talk about him in a great amount of detail in a moment. Um, but notice, I think, here firstly what he says. We have in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 3 through 6 a definition of the gospel. That Jesus died, that he was buried, and that on the third day he rose again. And look at what we have here in parallel. This is where this comes from. He says here in verses 6 and 7, um, he says, You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He died. And then, see the place where they laid him? This is where the burial is. And before that, he has risen. There you have the death, burial, and resurrection combined together in a gospel sense. This is central to what's going on. Notice the repetition of alarm. There's a lot of about here about being alarmed, being troubled, being bewildered. And right, right at the end of the gospel, we have them being afraid. And that's going to be crucial to the understanding of the ending. But there's a lot of bewilderment and concern and alarm and fear going on in all of these circumstances. It's central to the whole gospel. And I want to come back to the, to the young man as he's described here in a moment. But I want us to understand uh, the, the broader context of this passage. So let's go on a little bit further and we'll come back to that. He tells them, go and tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. This is in fact a, rep a repetition in Mark 14. He'd already told them to do that, but they hadn't listened. They stayed in the city. But uh, he repeats, the, the command is repeated. When I say he, sorry, I meant Jesus told them to do that. Um, and so uh, they're told he's going before you to Galilee there you will see him just as he told you now the only thing I want to tell you um, in note of this verse is something I think is quite beautiful and it's something that's really picked up in John's gospel and developed to a huge degree but less so here but it's nice to see it um, pardon me in passing and that is this the disciples and Peter. If you were Peter right now, there are other disciples. Obviously, they must be in Jesus' bad books, they will be thinking. They've all fled and they've left. Maybe, maybe he'll forgive them. He was big on forgiveness, was Jesus. Maybe they'll have a place still. Maybe... Maybe there's, 
there's some hope for them when they discover the resurrection, they'll want to see him and they'll say, oh, I'm sorry for fleeing, maybe. But Peter? Deny you once, deny you twice, deny you a third time. I never knew him, Peter. Surely Peter has burnt his bridges. Surely he's cut himself off. Surely there's no coming back. The message is you bring the disciples, hey, and you make sure Peter's there as well. There is in that subtle statement just an outpouring of grace. Sometimes I feel we're in church circles where people are so quick to um, judge other people's salvation on the basis of their current behavior. It does concern me. I I understand why. I, I mean, I totally get it. We're living in an era where people go forward for altar calls and say, yeah, I believe, and they say a prayer, and they go back to their lives, and there's not one jot of difference in their life at all. And, and the idea that these people are somehow have been saved and there's no evidence of salvation is frankly ridiculous. And I know that people in certain regions, particularly in the Bible Belt, as it's called, I know pastors, good solid pastors who preach there, they say their biggest problem is people in the pews who are goats who think they're sheep. And I understand that there's a problem, and I understand that there's a need to say, look, where's the fruit of your salvation? If, if you're genuinely saved, if the Holy Spirit lives within you, then, then we, we, we would see the Spirit working through you. I mean, I get that. I understand that. That's completely true. I do, it concerns me that sometimes in our circles, we maybe go a little far the other way. I think too often there are Peters in our midst who fall, who stumble, and they need grace to get back. And Peter says, you are the Christ. He believes, he has faith, he's saved. He was saved when he denied him the first time, he was saved when he denied him the second time, and he was saved when he denied him the third time. I understand the parallels aren't exact. I understand the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit for empowerment only came about in Acts chapter 2. I understand. Nevertheless, I think the example of Peter is one that should give us caution, amongst a few other passages, give us caution to condemn people. I'm always reminded of Jesus' exhortation to not separate the wheat from the tares, They look too similar sometimes. You wait for harvest and then you know which is which. You need to uh, always find a way back. Sometimes church discipline can feel like a retributive thing where people are being punished for their behavior. The purpose of church discipline is always restoration. Galatians 6 talks about it clearly. It could be you next. Of all the disciples, you take a poll of the disciples prior to the death of Christ and you say, which one of you is least likely to fall? Which one of you is least likely to betray? They'd all have said Peter. He was the confident one, the proud one, the brash one. He's the one who said you are the Christ. He's the one who was, who was clear. We have to remember every single one of us 
is a hair's breadth away from walking away from the faith and denying our Lord. And there needs to be grace to those who have and, and prayer and hope and opportunities to, to bring them back to, to walk with the Lord as the Spirit within them is obviously pleading with them to do. And I love this verse. I just love it. I love the way Peter's treated. I love the love and grace towards him. I think it's an important thing for us to take time to know. And so um, they went out and they fled from the tomb. They've just seen this man in a bright white robe. Again, we're coming back there, don't worry. And they're trembling and they're, uh, an astonishment has seized them. They said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. It doesn't mean they didn't obey. It means that uh, they didn't tell anyone other than the people they've been told to tell. I think that's pretty, pretty clear. But the idea is, is that you, know, you think, he's alive, he's alive, let's go and tell the world. They were petrified. They, they'd just seen um, this, as we'll see, angelic being, and they've been given this message, and Christ isn't there. They've been told he's been resurrected. And I, and I think of the word fear and afraid. It's a hard one to translate I mean, if, if, if we're afraid, there's always a negative fear attached with that word. Not so much in the Greek word. Sometimes it's amazement, but not quite. It's kind of got a broader range. But they were just basically dumbfounded um, just by the whole experience. They were in shock. And so the bizarre thing for me, just as a little note, is that the Greek text ends with four they were afraid. And there's a little rule in Greek, which is that the word for is always the second word in a sentence or a clause. And they were afraid is one word. So the, the, the actual gospel ends with the word for. If you want to do it in Yoda speak, literally, it says, they were afraid for. It is the most bizarre ending to a gospel. But you see, there's something to this. The fear and being afraid has been a, a regular theme throughout Mark's gospel. I think he deliberately leaves us with that thought. It's mentioned, you know, at least 10 plus other times in the gospel. If you remember back in chapter 4, the uh, boat is about to sink in the wild storm and they're afraid. The demoniac is healed and it's not the demoniac that gives them fear, but it's Jesus healing him and him sitting calmly that brings about fear. Who on earth is this man? We don't want you here. Go away. When they see him walking on water in chapter 6, there's fear. Mount of Transfiguration, there's a similar related word communicating fear. When they see um, the the glorify Christ, as it were, on the Mount of Transfiguration. And Mark is, is building a theme with this word. And again, I'm trying to take your Mark's journey. Fear is something that people have in response to Jesus. What he does is so amazing, so astonishing, so out of the ordinary, that people don't know what to make of him. And their response is fear. So in chapter 9 and verse 32, when the disciples are told 
He's going to die, be betrayed, he's going to die, he's going to be buried on the third day, he's going to rise again. They were afraid to ask him about it. So we have fear through the Gospels of what Jesus had done. And now, even in chapter 9, there is fear anticipating what he could do. That's how Mark's painting the picture. When the time comes for them to go to Jerusalem, again, the disciples have fear. Afraid, 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 afraid. It's a natural human response, but it's a response to Jesus and to all he has and all he's done. And I'll talk a little bit more about why that theme should come to an end right here, right now, as we conclude. What I want to do now, though, to fill in, is I want to go back a little to this young man, he's so-called. Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. Okay. You say, you keep calling him a young man. He's obviously an angel, right? Yeah, he's an angel. Absolutely he's an angel. We know that clearly from Matthew's Gospel. And I don't think if you read Mark's Gospel, there'd be any debate that he's an angel as well. The white robes, and he's there. This, this is an angelic visitation. Mark is not trying to hide that fact. Mark is not trying to take that away from us. It's very clear that he is an angel who is here telling them this. And, and so he uh, tells us about this, this young man. And so why young man? Well, there's two things I want to say about this. The first one's almost an aside. The other one, I think, is Mark's point. As an aside, I simply to say this. Many people have grown up with um, modern traditions of angels. Angels have big wings. There is nowhere in the Bible where angels have wings. Cherubim and seraphim, that are other angelic beings, have wings. And this is where the idea has originally uh, derived from. But when angels would appear, they'd appear just as kind of strong young men. And there they were, you know. And we will see later as we go through the book of Hebrews that the writer tantalizingly, and don't ask me too much on this because I haven't got there in Hebrews yet. I'm really looking forward to digging into this a little bit more freshly. But the writer talks about the possibility of people having entertained angels unaware. The idea is that you should be hospitable, hospitable to people who come and you don't know and they're fellow believers and you, you show hospitality towards them. And where the believers have done that, that perhaps even unwittingly they had given hospitality to an angel. Well, if the modern traditions and superstitions are correct, that wouldn't be able to happen. You'd say, oh my gosh, look at those huge wings. And it would kind of give the game away. But that's not how it happens. So firstly, it's worth saying, just as a reminder, just in case no, someone doesn't know, that the term young man is how an angel would have appeared and how an angel would have been seen and what have you. And we have many instances throughout Scripture and we'll perhaps turn to one in a moment. But the, the bigger question for me is this, and this has been my question as I've prepared throughout this journey. Why, Mark? Why not say angel? Matthew does. 
Why say young men? And I, and I think that, you know, though I don't always get the answers to these questions, that there's a question I always ask and I'm always trying to get an answer for because I'm interested as I teach an individual gospel. If I was teaching a harmony of the gospels, it would be very different. But if I was teaching an individual gospel, I'm interested in what is Matthew trying to tell us? What is Luke trying to tell us? Here, in this case, what's Mark trying to tell us? So why did Mark use the phrase young men? Well, I've done a lot of reading on this, and the best that I can come up with, and the one that really I, I subscribe to, and you know, it's not a huge thing, but you, you can, um, you can uh, agree or disagree, that's fine. But in, if you remember back in Mark uh, 14 and verse 51, you have to turn there, it's just a brief verse, there's this lovely little tantalizing incident, which we, at the time I said, believe is autobiographical, that when the disciples are fleeing, that there's a young man followed after him with nothing but a linen cloth around his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth, and he ran away naked. And let me give you my hypothesis. Um, and you can take it or leave it. You know, it, it, it's um, tentative. I admit it's tentative, but I, it's tantalizingly tentative. So I want to share it. Mark is throughout his gospel comparing people. You know, here's this person who believes, here's this person who doesn't believe. Here, here's this person that has faith and this doesn't. Even recently, look, the male disciples run away, the female disciples, they're the half-blind, they stay closer. There's all of this kind of stuff going on. Mark's been doing that throughout his gospel. It's his way of writing. And so there being a comparison between two anonymous people, both described as young men, is not, should not be surprising to us. The first young man, who we believe is Mark himself, as we said at the time, is a disciple he's hanging on. When, when the going gets tough, when they go to arrest him, he flees. And he flees in his nakedness. It, uh, I think it has deliberate, I didn't mention this at the time, it's only kind of working through this that I've kind of come to mind, but I think there's perhaps a deliberate reference there to Joseph, where Joseph left his clothes behind to flee sin, whereas the young man left his clothes behind to flee for safety. Two very, again, contrasting things. And the young man flees away and he leaves his linen cloth. Then we come after the resurrection to another young man. Yes, we know it's an angel. No one's disputing that. It's not the point. It's a literary device. Mark's drawing a connection. And we come to this other young man. And in between, there is another body of another man. And that body was put into a tomb after his crucifixion. And he was wrapped in what? A linen cloth. The man left all he had, and a linen cloth then was used, what he'd left, was left to wrap up the dead body of Christ. And following him rising, look what this man's wearing. Clean, white robes. Representing holiness. Representing cleanness. I think there's a, there's a lesson being taught here. Peter and the disciples, disciples and Peter, even Peter, all of us who might flee, all of us who might let him down. He'll take our sin that we leave 
and he'll use it and he'll turn it into righteous robes. Holiness is ours through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He died to pay the price for our sins, to take this. And I think the young man is, an, is, a, is a picture of a fleeing disciple, and the second young man is a picture of holiness. And you see, when you have a gospel ending abruptly, you think, oh, he just stopped? What happened? No, there are conclusions of key themes that are tied up in here that he's putting in to wrap these things up. This is what it means to you. From this young man to this, and bearing in mind that he's the first young man, we think, he's saying, in essence, I've been turned from a fleeing disciple into a righteous one, redeemed by the blood of Christ, accomplished through his resurrection from the dead. Anyway, like I say, it's tentative. It's uh, my, what I think that he's trying to do in the text here, and you can take it or leave it. But bearing in mind that we know that this is an angel speaking, I do think there's a connection here which is a lot clearer and one which I do uh, think is being communicated here in the text. Sometimes we, we don't spot these parallels, and I always try and spot them for you if I can. And... Uh, this isn't the first time that someone's been visited by an angel. If you know your Bibles fairly well, I would say to you, hey, when else were people visited by angels? When else did angels come down? And particularly, if you want to limit angelic experiences, let's limit them to times where we get to have a connection with the second person of the Trinity. Because right now we've got that, right? He's in the tomb of Jesus who's just been raised from the dead, right? Angelic appearances with the second person of the Trinity in view, I think we would hopefully consider Genesis 18, and it's there I want to turn now. So keep a finger in, um, keep a finger in Mark 16, and let's turn to Genesis 18. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat in the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked. Did you see the first connection with Mark 16 there? Lifted up his eyes and looked. Looked up. And behold, three men were standing in front of him, and he saw them and ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself low to the ground and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass your servant. Let a little water be brought. Wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves and after that you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you said. And Abraham went quickly to the tent of Sarah and said, quick, three seers of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and, tender and good, and gave it to the young man. Young man another link, um, he prepared it quickly. I'm not saying that was the, the angel who prepared it, I'm just saying it's an interesting lexical link. He took the curds and the milk and the calf that he prepared and set it before them. And he stood them under the tree while they were there. And they said to him, where's Sarah, your wife? 
And he said, she is in the tent. And Yahweh said, Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Let's pause there for a second. This is a well-known incident. We believe this is a theophany. It's an appearance of God himself in, uh, in, in, in a human form. Uh, it's generally conceded that this is, um, would have been the second person of the Trinity. Jesus is the one who appears in that way, and that would be him. And the accompanying people with him were angels. So this is the situation that we have. So there is this prophecy, this prediction about Sarah being able to have a son. And Sarah was listening behind the tent door, uh, the tent door behind him. Abram and Sarah were old and advanced in years, and the way of woman had ceased to be with Sarah. You know, Post-menopause, if you want, in English. So, you know, they're, they're, they're obviously, you know, we're, we're talking 100 years old here, so this is ridiculous to her. So Sarah laughed and said to herself, After I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why does Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Now the next verse. But Sarah denied it and said, But I did not laugh, for she was afraid. The wording here in the Greek, other than the person, she rather than they, is identical. If you have the Greek translation here of the Hebrew, it's identical to, um, to Mark 16. And I think that there is uh, a link here insofar as, here's Sarah, and God says, I'm going to do this amazing thing. Oh, don't be stupid. That can't possibly happen. How can you do that? nothing's too difficult for the Lord. It's going to happen. And she's stunned, astounded, shocked, and afraid. And there's denial. All of those elements are in Mark 16. All of them. He's been saying again and again and again, we have that triad. I'm going to die, I'm going to, go to the, I'm going to go be buried, I'm going to rise again. I'm going to die, I'm going to be buried, but rise again. And they didn't believe him. Peter even rebuked him. They didn't believe, they didn't accept, it wasn't possible. And the, the ringing, the ringing in their ears from Genesis 18 is, is anything impossible for God? I said I would do it and I would do it. And, and as angels announce, then angels announce now. This is what God can do and this is what's cap what he can do. It's what he has done. And I think that when you, you put all of this together, this is, this is a letter written to Gentile believers, predominantly Roman. He's not skimping on the resurrection. He's not omitting the resurrection. He's using it as a challenge to them. He, he's saying to them, the response of these people to the news is shock and fear. The response throughout the gospel has been shock and fear. People have been astonished at Jesus, bewildered by Jesus, confused by Jesus, afraid of Jesus. 
But God said all along, this is what I'm going to do. And he has done it. And you need to believe it because nothing is, too impossible. nothing is impossible for God. He can accomplish everything. And you know what? What are you going to do? They were afraid. How are you going to respond? In your life, he was resurrected? He's alive? What do you do? Does fear lead you to flee? and leave your linen cloth? Or does fear lead you to righteousness? They were afraid for. I don't think that's an exhortation to not be afraid. It's an exhortation in the midst of the astonishing revelation of the resurrection of Jesus Christ to respond in worship, to believe in that death, that burial, that resurrection, to do what he said you should do all along, which is to take up your cross, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him, and to become a disciple of Jesus Christ, clothed in white robes, devoted to him, The idea of the resurrection is laughable. It's stupendous. He died. Those who knew him best had either run away or they were going to get his body ready. But he was resurrected. And he's alive. And the challenge to the Romans here, the challenge of Mark's gospel, yes, he could talk more about the resurrection, but he's talking to a people who understand these kind of terms. They were afraid for? What are you going to do? How are you going to respond? What has this gospel done for you? How does it impact you? How does it change your life, your response? How do you deal with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection? The gospel is right the way through has been consistent on the theme of discipleship. There's no easy believism in Mark's gospel. There is the denying of self. There is going into the face of danger. Ah, there's always going to be fear in the Christian life in the broad sense of the term. The question is, what do you do with it? And that is the question. And that is the challenge that Mark's gospel deliberately ends with. So we take it ringing in our ears and this gospel goes with us as we seek to walk a Christian life. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your your gracious truth of this gospel. I thank you for this journey. And it is my prayer that uh, the studies will have been a blessing to those who've heard and through the recordings to those who will hear. Pray, Lord, that we would be people who respond to you correctly who seek to be disciples, who seek to walk with you, and who bring glory to your name. Amen. Amen.